0: How can you not be pedantic A stat blast will keep you distracted It's a long slog to death But the are sure to make you smile This is effectively why This is effectively why. Hello and welcome to episode 2019 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm doing better, as you can probably hear. A little bit better. Not 100%, but a little less congested than Mm. I have been for most of the past week, so that's good.
0: You've exited your Betty Davis
1: phase. I hope so. Yeah, good for me, and also good for our listeners. Probably that <laughs> I don't have to inflict that voice on them anymore. But thank you all for bearing with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you should sing. You should have like sung songs from The Muppet Show and been like Kermit. You could have. You could have entered a Kermit. Register,
1: maybe. I still am largely on vocal rest, except when I'm doing podcasts, which is basically every day on one podcast or another, mm. but it's just a, a lot of protracted silences and then speaking very animatedly, like I'm on a podcast and I'm uh, entertaining people, and then I go back to being quiet for hours on end.
0: <laughs> ben, you know what Kermit would say? I gotta make time for me.
1: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So last time, or recently, we talked about whether we need to retire our bit about Mike Trout being at the top of the Mm -hmm. war leaderboard and thus stats count Mm -hmm. and the season is real and it's no longer a small sample. And we may yet need to do that, but Shohei Otani, Mike Trout's teammate, is at the top of the war leaderboard now alone in first place at Fangraphs and also at Baseball Reference. So if we can hand that crown from Trout to anyone, it would be Shohei Otani. And now he is, in fact, at the top. It's taken a little longer than I would have liked. I think he's probably been there at times, but he was uh, consistently in the top 10, top 20. But he has been quite hot as of late, in terms of his performance, I mean, as opposed to just his general appearance <laughs> just he's he's been hitting very well, so I've been happy to see that, and he has ascended to the top of the leaderboard but it's it's largely because he's been hitting so well, yeah, and I was thinking that my evaluation of whether he's a better hitter or pitcher mm. has has flip-flopped at least a few times since he came to MLB. When he first came over, I think I thought he'd probably be better as a pitcher. And then, of course, he got hurt as a pitcher, and he hit so well that he was clearly a better hitter for a while. And then it was looking like he was a better pitcher again. If you had asked me at the start of this season, I think I would have said better pitcher than hitter. And yet he has uh, scuffled a bit on yeah. the mound as of late. And he's been tearing it up at the plate. Yeah. So I don't know if, if that has been enough to change my mind yet again and say, no, he's a better hitter than he is a pitcher. I guess point is he's really great at both and I can't make up my mind. <laughs> he just keeps topping himself on one end or the other and therefore I changed my mind so it's, I, that was not any I'm not trying to <laughs> what? I, I'm, I heard I'm not, you snickering and I'm i was not wasn't, <laughs> it was quiet
0: enough that no one would have noticed and then
1: I, I was talking about his ends or others but I wasn't trying to uh, anyway get anyway, your head out of the my, that one make. was
0: my fault that one you know what ben, that one's on me.
1: <laughs> it's never I've never attempted to do any innuendo or, or double entendres when it comes to Shohei Otani I don't know whether you're getting this but it's not like I've ever doubted his uh, ability to do both at a high level but he he keeps making me think oh no he's actually better at that no wait he's better at that so right now he's been better as a hitter I don't know whether I think he is a better hitter than he is a pitcher but he has been thus far
0: well you know when you watch a game where a guy hits a a two run shot and then you're like Mm -hmm. oh surely that's all he has and then he's like no
1: yeah, I have more.
0: I have more to give. You Opposite know? fields,
1: 459 feet, uh, just like t- to left of straightaway center and like on an inside pitch. So he just sort of stayed just inside outed a ball, 459. Yeah. Yep. It's not normal.
0: Not normal. It's not normal, Ben, you know? And then like uh, it's extras, you know? It's a good time mm-hmm. to hit home runs. It's a good yeah. time to, to bop them. And mm-hmm. he did. Bopped yep. it. Popped it yep. right out. Beat the yep. beat the Rangers, mm-hmm. uh, a better team. And uh, he, did it, he didn't do it all by himself, but he sure helped. He helped yeah. a lot. I haven't looked, but I feel confident saying that in terms of like win probability added, he was the, the leader by a long shot, almost as long so. as his two shots.
1: <laughs> yeah, he was involved in all the Angels rallies in one way or another. And yeah, he has a 158 WRC plus now, which is higher than his WRC plus in 2021, which was his best offensive season to date. So he's looked great And he actually came out and admitted to feeling some fatigue on the mound Which is what he attributed some of his recent struggles to I think, again, maybe some of it could sweepers. be pitch selection Too <laughs> <Yeah>. many sweepers <laughs> Too many sweepers to left-handed hitters yeah, I told so him many. last time And then he threw a, a couple back-to-back to Jared Kelnick in his most recent start and, and Kelnick hit one of them out That one also went far Yeah, it did it Went very far but he did concede that uh, – because he's been pitching more frequently as opposed to once a week. It's been more like every six days. And they've been giving him a little more time lately as he says, said that maybe he has struggled a little bit to handle that workload. He said he's still feeling fine and healthy. And Phil Nevin said his understanding is that he's he's not fatigued in a, like, bone-tired, he wakes-up-dragging kind of way. But just while he's on the mound – He maybe has gotten tired in some starts, and he hasn't had his pinpoint control. He's been walking a lot of guys. He's been hitting a lot of guys. He's been throwing a lot of wild pitches. So is that related to the fatigue or something else? I don't know. But he was just so lights out, especially in the second half last year as a pitcher, and I was sort of expecting that this would be the year when he paired the excellent offense with that incredible pitching. And the incredible pitching hasn't quite been there in his last several starts, at least. But I'm, I'm hopeful that the rest of the way, he'll go back to making me question whether he is better at one or the other again. It's just it's too close to call, I think, which is part of what makes him special, because if he were merely passable at one and a superstar at the other, then there would continue to be calls probably for him to specialize. Like if he were just an okay pitcher, then I think people would say, well, he'd be better off playing the field every day and not DHing, and he'd offer a lot of defensive value, and maybe he could come in in relief sometimes. Or if he were just an ace pitcher, but he was just a, a marginal hitter, an average hitter, then it would be, "Eh, is this really worth it? And maybe it'd be better if he took some days off and got some rest and was at his best on the mound and minimized his injury risk. But because he is so great at both and because he's kind of alternated which one he's best at from year to year and month to month, you can't really make a case. Uh, I hope no one would want to make a case anymore that he should specialize. But for a while there, that was was a thing. So I think he has uh, silenced that. Line of discussion. Fortunately,
0: yeah, I don't, I don't see many people being like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe just like stick him in right field, you
1: know,
0: let him cook. I mean, if it happened every now and again, wouldn't have any issues no. with that, Ben. That would. I'd be, like to see it. It'd yeah, be that'd be fun every now and again. But I, I think that he's, you know, he's being asked to do so many things. He's supposed to be the best pitcher on the Angels. He's supposed to be. Tied for first in terms of their hitters. He's supposed to be an icon, you know, uh-huh. a brand ambassador, Yeah, a very tall person, mm-hmm. um, a strapping guy. It's just mm-hmm. a lot of things to expect someone to be. And I'm glad that we aren't calling for him to specialize, but maybe I should, you know, be realistic about how often he would really want to play the field at this point. You know, it's like, imagine mm-hmm. doing that too. So many things.
1: Yeah. Well we have established Shohei Otani remains good at baseball. Remains good, still good, yeah. (laughs) So here's a a follow-up to something we talked about last week. We did a draft of the best players under 25 years old, and I did put a form up where people could vote on which of us had the better draft. I didn't really promote that very much. I I mentioned it as we were drafting and then forgot to mention it in the outro and didn't really plug it a whole lot elsewhere. So we didn't get a huge response, but of the response we did get, it was overwhelmingly in your favor. Mm. The listeners agree that you won that draft Mm. by a margin of, let's see, I'm going to close the voting now, I suppose, (laughs) to this point. You have received sixty-eight point five percent of the wow. votes, and I've gotten a mere thirty-one point five percent.
0: Wow, I, I'm humbled, Ben. You know,
1: I'm humbled. I'm the one who's humbled because uh, you made me look bad here. I guess <laughs>
0: again, remains to be seen. Right, mm-hmm. like ten years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not decided yet. <laughs> I I
0: think that might be the most optimistic thing we've ever done. (laughs) You know, as I think about it, I think it's pretty, and not because we have any designs on like dissolving the podcast or anything like that. I think, um, you know, the broader world has designs on dissolving any number of things. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, pretty optimistic on our part. I am satisfied with my draft. Although I do, I still do uh, have regret about not taking Jimenez earlier, but, I'll let go of that regret. I I got a nice consolation prize, which is smoking you, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, apparently. Yeah. No, I I don't disagree with the wisdom of crowds here. Just looking at the drafts, I feel like you did better. You got I, good players. Yeah. It would be weird if, if we didn't get good players, both of us. But, but I think maybe you got better players. I think I'm with the crowd here. Wow. You definitely got bigger stars I think yeah. which which doesn't necessarily mean Mm-mm. that they will be more productive over the next decade but and uh, look you had the advantage of the first pick it is true but your first four picks were Wander Franco Fernando Tatís Jr. Julio Rodriguez and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Yeah that's some star power yeah. that's some serious those are marquee names there yeah. whereas I had Juan Soto, who's a star, and then some more recent arrivals, uh, guys who are well-known in baseball circles, certainly, but not marquee household names to the same degree, like Corbin Carroll and Ellie Dale Cruz and Gunnar Henderson. Although I was encouraged that since we drafted Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll were named players of the week. <laughs> so so it's, uh, it's one of these nice things where like guys on my team, every time I see them do well, which is pretty often because they're really good players. I'm like, oh yeah, hey, I got that guy on my my team that doesn't really mean anything, but <laughs> it's nice.
0: And Ben, you know, if you look at the position player leaderboards at Fangrass, like, we have picks, like, up up top, you and I, because Corman mm-hmm. Carroll and Wander Franco are tied for position player war. Yeah. And, you know, with the usual, like, the difference between those two guys and, say, Freddie Freeman and Ronald Acuna Jr. Having, I mean, it's basically the same war, right? And, like, it's the same war. It's 3-3, mm-hmm. three, 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 yeah. Friends, it's the same. But... <laughs> It's not literally the same, but it's like effectively the same. So, um, you know, I think that people are going to... Wake up to the reality of how good a, a player, you know, future Hall of Famer Corbin Carroll.
1: Is. Yeah, I think so too. Now that the Diamondbacks have the best record in the National League, is that still true? They do. I think They do. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: Six six win uh, six game win streak. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No,
1: just like the Oakland A's <laughs> about that. So yeah. weird.
0: But same <laughs> number of wins as the Kansas City Royals. Yeah. Kansas City. I. You yeah, know, we should talk about better. that in
1: a minute because uh, that's yeah. that's close. But. But yes, I, I'm going to say I side with the voters here. I think you had the better draft, but my confidence, obviously, when we're talking about a 10 year draft and many players who have just embarked upon their big league careers, my confidence about which of us had the better draft is quite low. So I would not be surprised if I won, but uh, I think I would probably pick you two at this point. I would say, I think the thing that made me happiest is that I don't think we ignored anyone super obvious, which was one of my fears, <laughs> that we would just miss someone somehow. But the only name who's been mentioned by someone who's contacted us after the draft and said, oh, hey, you sort of snubbed this guy as Ezekiel Tovar of the Rockies, which, you know, I guess we could have mentioned him as a as an also-ran, but I don't feel bad about not having drafted him, I don't think. And it did occur to me that that Zach Neto maybe should have or could have been drafted. Like, didn't I say him? Did you? Didn't did, you may have mentioned him. I don't, I don't know.
0: I don't know that I did. Actually, I might be. I, y- you know, don't get greedy, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> I don't think I did. But neither of us drafted him. And just uh, looking at some of my latter round picks, there, I was thinking eh, maybe I'd rather have Zach Neto than that guy, just because you know he came up with very little minor league time and was just sort of thrown into the fire, and he's very much held his own, and I've seen a lot of him good shortstop. Uh, he's held his own at the plate. and He's young. So yeah, maybe should have given more consideration to him. But no glaring, egregious omission on Omissions, our part, which is, no. I think, the I think, most important thing. We avoided know, embarrassment. Sure <laughs> yeah, other than the embarrassment of uh, you getting so many more votes than me. But collectively, we avoided the embarrassment of not drafting someone obvious.
0: I don't want to say that winning this draft isn't important to me. All of our drafts are important to me, Ben. Mm-hmm. But, like, I really I want to win the minor league free agent draft. That's my...
1: Yeah, that's the big my, one. My,
0: that's the big one, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to embarrass myself this year, though, because mm-hmm. Brent Honeywell, I mean, it's it was an inspired pick, really. Yeah. If we're talking about actually good picks on my part, mm-hmm. like, anyone could... Could draft Wander Franco. That's yeah, easy. Yeah, you know, that's child's play.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, barely any bragging rights here. Uh, the bragging rights are really can we find players no one's ever heard of and forecast right. that they will be big leaguers, not uh, that we can draft the very best players under an age and, right, yeah, and like, say that they will be good. But yeah, uh, hopefully we'll be here to talk about it in 10 years. And uh, I think, yeah, I think probably 10 years will pass, regardless of whether we are still doing the podcast at that point. we well, yeah,
0: time. Uh, won't
1: stop. <laughs> no, uh, hopefully MLB will still exist. So, yeah. th- there will be results regardless of whether we're here to chronicle them. But, hey, we've already had 10-year drafts in the history of this podcast that have yeah. completed and the podcast How abides. about that? So, we'll see.
0: How about that? Yeah, so
1: we're speaking on Tuesday afternoon, the day of the reverse boycott at the Oakland A's game. And uh, best of of luck, best wishes to all the reverse boycotters out there. But suddenly, the A's are uh, looking almost like a half-respectable baseball team (laughs) over the last week or so. They uh, beat some contending teams. They beat the Tampa Bay Rays even. Yeah. And I guess it just goes to show that uh, even a truly terrible team on any given day or even six yep. given days can beat a better team, which is yep. why when we talked about how many games are the A's going to win, and we mentioned that all mm. the projections said, oh, they'll get to 50 or something in that range, and and we were having a hard time envisioning them even winning 50 games because they were on pace for 20 or 30 wins or whatever yeah. it was. and. You always bet on regression, just evening things out to some extent. So uh, who knows? They they might go on a 20-game losing streak after this, or they might go on a miraculous Moneyball-style 20-game winning streak. I guess we'll see, but it's been sort of weird and fun to watch them actually uh, beating some decent teams here for a whole week. So Ace fans get to do their reverse boycott and also get to see their team win a few games. So that's nice.
0: Yeah, it is nice. I mean, I think that um, I don't want to move on from them so fast, mm-hmm. but there's there's like the the nicety of them putting something resembling a competent big league product on the field. And then I was sitting here and I was looking at the, the standings, yeah. you know, looking at these records. And I'm like, okay. So, again, as we record, the the... A's have won 18 games. They're mm-hmm. still 24 and a half games
1: back. Yeah. <laughs> They're still terrible, to be clear. Oh,
0: boy. <laughs> They're 18 a, and 50.
1: It's, it's really, really yeah, bad. But.
0: They've already lost 50 games. But, you know, you sit here. We've already talked about how the Royals have to feel very nervous. And then, like, if you're the if you're the Rockies, if you're the Cardinals, if you're the Nationals, you're sitting there with the the Cubs. Mm-hmm. The knowledge that it's like, we, we've only won you know, 10-ish games more than the
1: mm-hmm.
0: than the A's. Yeah. That has to feel bad. Yeah. That has to feel, you know, that has to feel bad. But as we've discussed before, like, this is a great year to be a bad baseball team because mm-hmm. with the exception potentially of the Royals, the odds that we're going to talk about you nearly as much as this club in Oakland, very low, mm-hmm. you know, very low. And people have, I've noticed People, you know, I'm doing my favorite thing where I reference anonymous people on the internet, like, <laughs> oh, the Royals, you know, we, we aren't talking enough about the Royals being bad. And it's like, we, we probably should talk about them being bad, but I do think that like the intent to be as bad as Oakland is like, that's a special kind of thing. And I don't mean special in a happy way, mm-hmm. you know, but I think it is remarkable yeah, in a way that requires pretty thorough um, looking over and analysis, mm-hmm. uh, which isn't to say that the Royals are good um, or that Royals fans aren't disappointed or that the roster construction in Kansas city can't be described as kind of odd. Cause we could, we could describe it that way. You know, we could look at that rotation and be like, so, mm-hmm. you know, what are we, what's our plan friends? <laughs> and I think all of that is fair game, but I do think that they, even though they are not, succeeding I do think that Kansas City like would like to win more than they are and I'm I remain unconvinced that at least at the ownership level certainly the the guys on the field, I think, would like to win a, a great deal more than they have. But at the ownership level, un, unmoved that mm-hmm. um, Oakland isn't doing exactly what it set out to do. Or the A's are. Not the city
1: of Oakland. The city of <laughs> Oakland
0: standing firm against yes. a real estate deal. Mm-hmm. I, I applaud. I commend yeah. them for sticking to their plan. So
1: the A's are 18-50. and 50, The Royals are 18-48. and 48, So it's quite close. And Quite close. It is historic to have two teams this terrible, Neil yeah. Payne and... At his substack, Neil Substack, just wrote about this today, and he found that there have been only three seasons in the modern era of the AL and NL since 1901 to feature two teams with a winning percentage worse than 275 through 66 games. So it's this year with the A's and the Royals, and it's the 1911 Boston Rustlers and St. Louis Browns and the 1904 Washington Senators and Philadelphia Phillies. So 1911, 1904, the only two previous AL, AL seasons in the modern era to have two teams start out seasons so terribly. So that's not Great, I think there is a pretty decent parity when it comes to the rest of the standings, as we've discussed, and there are maybe fewer super teams than we've seen recently. And friend of the show Rob Means just wrote recently about how parity when it comes to teams getting better or getting worse, like mobility, basically, like can you go from being bad to being good? It's uh, roughly middle of the pack, historically speaking. It's not uh, extremely Bad or immobile these days, but truly two terrible teams. And I think you're right. They got here in different ways and they're different kinds of disappointing. I saw Renny Gisarelli some time ago, I think, when the Royals probably had a better winning percentage than they do now. He called this Royal season the most disappointing he's ever seen, and he's seen a lot of disappointing royal seasons. But a lot of those seasons maybe weren't so disappointing because no one got their hopes up because they weren't expecting to be good, right? And that's the case with the A's. No one thought the A's were going to be Good. No one thought this was going to be a year that they took a step forward. They very obviously and intentionally took steps back. Right. So they might have the the beginnings of uh, something coming years down the road. But obviously, they're not trying to win right now. They're pretty actively trying to do the opposite of that. So the Royals. We're not quite in that camp, right? Like There was some, some hope, some optimism about the Royals, a new regime, new manager, some new age uh, managers and coaches coming in, right? And maybe this was going to be a, a new way of operating for the Royals, and maybe they would make some strides when it came to player development at the major league level, and some of those pitchers who had stalled, maybe they would take a step forward. And all those position players debuted last year, and really, maybe the core was coalescing and weak division and who knows and instead they have been horrendous it's uh it's almost like the Tigers last year, I think, when people thought, okay, the Tigers, maybe they're kind of turning the corner here. And then they just uh, went back around the corner and they were much worse in every way. <laughs> so that's that's kind of what the Royals they're have c- been. Circling the block. Yeah, they're just they're slinking around the corner. They're just slouching around. I mean, that's what the Royals are right now. So it's obviously more embarrassing to do what the A's have done and just intentionally tank your team and alienate your fan base. And as we speak, still not have landed your alternative home in Las Vegas, which seems kind of ill-conceived to begin with, but it is also... It's so (laughs) shocking
0: that they're like bad at politics too, you know, I really would have bet on that being a strength of theirs. Yes,
1: they've won over hearts and minds in Oakland so well, but... Really, it's embarrassing in a different way that the royals are are not intentionally trying to be terrible and yet they have managed to be almost as terrible as the Okcon thus far, so both really bad
0: they're both really bad, but like how you get to the bad it it matters a great deal it does you matter. know it's mm-hmm. like uh it's it's important
1: mm-hmm. so couple things. Uh, you can help me with this, I, I think, probably, because you're more plugged into college baseball than I am, but uh, mm. I'm, I'm peripherally aware of the goings-on in college baseball these days, because, you know, it's... Is it
0: because we yell at you about
1: it? <laughs> no, actually. It's not, that hasn't had much of an effect, I'm sorry to say, but uh, but I am still aware, because it's College World Series time, right, and uh, yeah. there's some exciting happenings, and uh, there was a weird, wild ending to a game and a dropped uh, pop-up fly ball.
0: Ben, oh, no! I had forgotten until you brought it back, yeah, up and now I'm oh God, it was um
1: <laughs> painful,
0: oh, 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 oh my stars star. <laughs>
1: yeah, you'll have to help me with all the details here, or I will have to look them up quickly because I just see uh, i I see highlights about college baseball teams and college baseball players and and the specific names mean very little to me, and the uniforms sort of just like, oh that was that was very painful, that was unfortunate, uh, <laughs> but doesn't really go beyond that, but <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm re I'm reliving it. I'm re I'm reliving yeah. it and I can't <sighs> my stars. So I have to say, I have to say a couple of things about this inning. So to set the scene, this is super regional play between Stanford and Texas. Mm-hmm. And the two teams were tied one one and <sighs> Oh gosh, I feel I'm like I feel like my fingers are tingling. Um so prior to the the catastrophic error that allowed Stanford to walk this off. We almost saw what would have been one of the worst two plans in the history of baseball, because earlier in this inning, Alberto Rios, who ended up being the, the winning run, he thought he got all a one ben. Yeah, He thought he hit a, a walk off home run. He didn't. He hit what ended up being a double. And I think that what happened is that the ball hit the wall yeah. in a, perfectly into the Pac-12 logo. Yes. Which is white. Right. <laughs> and so he thought it was gone, and it was not. It was off the wall. And he kind of was getting ready to do the home run trot and then realized he had to really motor into second base because he was about to get thrown out at second. He did not mm-hmm. clearly get thrown out at second. Yeah. And then, you know, you got runners on first and second. You got two outs. Again, tie game. And Drew Bowser hits what should have been an easy fly ball out to the outfield. But it was clear that in the twilight, like four different Longhorns lost track of the ball. And rather than it being, you know, just a lazy fly out to send the game to extras, the ball lands, the Cardinal walk off the Longhorns, and it was awful ben it was it was awful yeah. and like i don't have any i don't have any investment in either of these teams you know i'm not rooting for stanford i'm not rooting for texas but it was just a really terrible way for a team to lose their season it was such a strange inning because of the almost two plan earlier also mm-hmm. and i just you know, afterward, you have just a land of contrast (laughs) on the field because Stanford is clearly elated. They're so excited. They're going to the College World Series. You know, Drew Bowser is so excited. But all of these guys are just from Texas are just, like, weeping, you know. And there was a shot from the outfield. You know, the center field camera in the replays captures the pitcher thinking, he thought that, oh, I'm walking off the field. He starts walking off the field because, wow, I got that fly ball out that mm-hmm. I needed. Yep. You know, and and so you just see Lucas Gordon start to walk off the field and then realize what's happening and double over. The catcher is doubled over. It was, <laughs> yeah. Ben, it was I'm bad. just, <laughs> yeah oh. and like, you know. Who's to say what would have happened if the game had gone to extras? There's just nothing that guarantees that Stanford is going to win. They were they hosted a regional, but the Pac-12 field was just pretty weak in general, in my opinion. Even even Stanford, which was I think they were ranked like eighth in terms of the entire field going into the tournament, but like I saw, you know, the Pac-12 tournament, such as it is, takes place in in the valley. Now they play it at Scottsdale Stadium. This is the second year. Um, that they've done that. And like, I watched Stanford play a little bit in person in that tournament and like making a face. Like, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, like the entire Pac 12 field was just kind of weak in general. It's not that Stanford doesn't have good players, they obviously do. But like, you know, compared to the SEC in particular, it was just like, okay, like, was like these guys are going to get steamrolled. So who knows what would have happened, but we know what did happen. <laughs> and, um, like, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it. People have long lives. They experience all kinds of disappointments and joys. You know, I imagine many of these young men on the Longhorns will play good baseball in the future and they'll have, you know, families. They'll they'll witness the birth of children. Mm -hmm. But it's weird to know about a bunch of strangers that, like, of the things they might talk about in therapy later, if they do therapy, this might be on that list. It's a weird thing to to potentially know about people you've never met and probably will never meet. Yeah, so,
1: yeah. Well,
0: you should watch more college baseball <laughs> so you can be like emotionally devastated by proxy I like know. I was. I just yelled in my living room, no, <laughs> oh,
1: no, Yeah. oh,
0: no. No, I know oh, it's not God. always
1: like that, but uh, that play. No, most of the time
0: it's just like really bad. Like catching, yeah, you know, right. like most of the time that's what you watch, but whoo-
1: yeah. So, this, <laughs> so that caught my eye because that was circulating yeah. everywhere. And also, speaking of lifelong pain and lifelong memories, mm. what came to my attention about college baseball this week, as always happens at this time of year, there's a conversation about pitch counts, right? And about yeah. pitcher usage. And I, yes. I find that really interesting because. Yeah. You have, I think, well-intentioned people who are scrutinizing the workloads of these young pitchers and I think are sometimes appropriately pointing out this seems irresponsible, this is dangerous, but then – Also, maybe being a little
0: over-exuberant at times about that. I think that both of those things are true.
1: Yeah, and it's hard for me as someone who doesn't pay close attention to college baseball to know which is which and to know which times it's appropriate to say this is bad and this deserves condemnation and – Actually, this time is okay because this pitcher is not planning to pitch professionally or probably doesn't have a professional future, and so he's leaving it all on the field, right? So, for instance, I was following some of Keith Law's tweets about this, and he was tweeting about this guy, Gabriel Romano. Uh, who had a 164-pitch game for Johns Hopkins Hopkins to force a a winner-take-all national championship game that I think they then lost, right? But this guy threw 164 pitches, so you see that and you think, oh my gosh, his arm is going to fall off. And who is this coach? This is malpractice, right? And then the pitcher, Romano... He himself, quote, tweeted Keith Law's tweet about that and said, last game of my baseball career as a fifth year grad student looking to send my team to a winner take all game. I don't think there's anything wrong with this. At the end of the day, it was my call and can confirm my arm is doing just fine. So so in his case, you know, if he knows I'm never going to pitch again, not because of injury, but just because that's it, I'm. Calling it quits. That's I don't have a professional future. I don't aspire to be drafted or to pitch in the minors or the majors. And this is gonna be my defining lasting sporting memory, right? This is the pinnacle of my athletic career. And so I'm gonna throw a bunch of pitches. And and you know, you can usually throw one high pitch count outing without your arm literally falling off. You you never know, but it it's not like there's a perfect correlation between throwing a lot of pitches in a game and getting hurt or not throwing a lot of pitches in a game and not getting hurt. <laughs> Cause uh, a lot of times you can handle someone very carefully and they will still get hurt. We just don't know that much about pitcher injuries or preventing them. Right. So There was another case that came up involving Quinn Matthews, yeah, right? And that one got a lot of attention because he threw, what was it, 156 pitches?
0: 156 pitches, yeah. Okay.
1: And some people were saying, this is uh, irresponsible. Quinn Matthews was drafted – Right, previously. Yes. He was uh, drafted, I think, in the 19th round. 19th round. Okay. I believe that's right, yeah. Get, Getting most of my details right. All right, go me. Yeah, you're doing, <laughs> you're doing really
0: well. You didn't know I the name of yeah. a single player who plays for either Stanford or Texas. <laughs> or, but... or
1: that those were the two teams involved. <laughs> but oh,
0: really? No. Oh, bad. I, mean, I was like prepared to, like, you know, no, I you needed, don't know who Drew Bowser is. I needed that's your fine, help but...
1: with all of that. But,
0: okay. uh, but Well, I'm glad I could be here for you <laughs> and do a dramatic reenactment from my couch yeah. 18 hours ago. So you know, Quinn
1: Matthews, I, I guess, is a tougher case. Like I, I saw that Jake Mintz, uh, our friend from Sesame's Family mm-hmm. Barbecue, he defended that, you know, as a, yeah. a former college pitcher who's had an arm injury himself. And and I was asking Eric Longenhagen what his outlook for Matthews is, and he said a 40 if you like him on the 20 to 80 scale, so uh, well below average. Uh, he said he's a lefty with a changeup, fifth starter, spot starter type Three velo, four breaking ball, flappable on mound presence in my looks. <laughs> not unflappable, but flappable. Flappable. Yeah. So, yeah. so not a Stanford has a couple of flappable uh-huh.
0: uh, pitchers in 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 my looks, Ben. Yeah. You know. Well, hmm?
1: I wouldn't blame anyone for being flapped on a play like flapped. like that play, but. Oh gosh. Sorry, sorry to conjure gosh. it again in your mind. <sighs> anyway, Matthews is. More of a prospect, like, I guess he intends to have a career, right? Like, he's not – he wasn't like, this is it, this was my last game, but he's also probably not a future big leaguer, I guess, from the sound of it. Doesn't – you know, he's not going to be, like, a top pick. So – it's It's complicated, because obviously, there is this history and legacy of young pitchers being overused and and college coaches. Uh, they want to win those games, right? They want to preserve their jobs and burnish their credentials. And they're supposed to have their charges, best interests long term at heart. But they may not always. and And there may be cases where, the pitcher has the choice to keep going or not, like Romano says he did, and there could be cases where the pitcher doesn't really have uh, autonomy and and doesn't really have a say. I mean, I guess he could refuse to go out there, but but maybe he's under pressure to pitch a lot. So you you don't really know from afar. Certainly, I don't whether in any particular case. The kids is is done. Whether he's made a considered decision, you know, when you're that young, sometimes it's it's hard to look long term and think how this is going to affect your prospects uh, for decades to come. So it's an interesting conversation because I think things have gotten better in that respect when it comes to Yeah, workloads. They definitely have. Yeah. But but there are still some outlier pitch counts, uh, at least to our eyes, looking at the big leagues where no one ever really throws more than, what, 120 these days, and even that would raise some eyebrows.
0: Okay, I think so many things (laughs) at once. Let's see if I can sequence them in a way that is remotely coherent. So, first of all, you're right that at least for some, certainly not for all, because there are I think a lot of the people who raise objections to or concerns about pitch counts in college are really keen-eyed observers of college baseball. Yeah. So, like, you know, I, I'm going to be like, you know, Keith doesn't have a context for amateur baseball because, like, that's a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> so, But I do think that it can be particularly striking for folks whose primary context for baseball is not just professional baseball, but major league baseball to be like, oh, my God, like 130 pitches like that's crazy because we so rarely see guys in the majors throw anything
1: approaching that anymore, mm-hmm. right? So Yeah, it's a uh, 1997 was the last time anyone did that in the majors and it was Tim Wakefield the knuckleballer, so. <laughs>
0: and like you and you think about the guys who in the course of their more recent careers routinely crest uh 115, 120 pitches and it tends to be concentrated to a couple of guys who have demonstrated sort of capacity for that stamina uh regularly, right? Like it's A lot of Justin Verlander when you're looking at those Mm -hmm. game locks, Mm -hmm. right? So there's that piece of it. I think philosophically, you know, if your stance is, hey, especially for draft prospects, right, guys who can look forward to something approaching a reasonable professional career, it's just better to be a little conservative with their usage so that they are able to have the professional career that they're hoping for. Like, I think that's a defensible position. I do think that it's important to differentiate between guys with big pitch counts and the circumstances that surround those outings because Mm -hmm. it, if for no other reason than it really does help to identify the cases where a guy is being overused and we should maybe sort of raise an eyebrow and be like, hey, your job as a coach, you know, if we're gonna buy into this whole project and pretend that this is in some way in service of these athletes and that there's pedagogic value in a sports and all of that stuff, like your job is to protect these guys from themselves and Shockingly, sometimes young men are like, "How am I gonna do it?" Mm-hmm. And they, their present them isn't really in conversation with future them, right? right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's important for there to be bumpers around this stuff. Um, and I also think that it's really important for us to distinguish between these different cases, right? J.J. Cooper wrote a thing for Baseball America today talking about Paul Skeens, his outing in the regionals generated a lot of conversation with a lot of people quite concerned because not only is Skeens a a draft prospect, like, he's a first-round draft prospect. He might be a top-five, a top-two draft prospect, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, it is understandable that people would be like, what are you doing with this guy? Like, it's so irresponsible. But I think that, like, you know, we should look at the fact that Skeens throws, you know, around 110 120 pitches fairly often he was on eight days of rest he Mm -hmm. wasn't going to be used again for eight days right and you know this pitch count is pretty close to what the pitch smart guidelines say now those Mm -hmm. aren't perfect Mm -hmm. and obviously any generalized guidelines like that are going to be in tension with the fact that they are you know population level guidelines and Paul Skeens is an N of one, Mm -hmm. right? And so we don't know, like, you know, what a guy can do is going to vary guy to guy. But again, Skeens has demonstrated, like, he can normally throw 110, 120 pitches, right? I think that that's a very different set of circumstances, even with the heightened scrutiny you might expect for a guy who is anticipated to go so highly in the draft from someone throwing, you know, 120 pitches when they aren't regularly stretched out to that much or 120 pitches on short rest. Mm-hmm. You know, I obviously don't have, like, a more informed perspective on Quinn Matthews' future career as a prospect than Eric does. Mm-hmm. I think, like, 150 pitches feels like a lot of pitches to Yeah, me. like That just feels like a lot. It feels like a lot of pitches. And if you want to say, that feels like too many pitches, I think that that, that that's fine. But, like, that's different than... You know, Skeens is different than another guy throwing as many pitches as Skeens did on short rest, right? Like, these are circumstances that should be taken and evaluated on a case-by-case basis, not because, you know, there isn't a history of college coaches being irresponsible with their arms, and not because there isn't a history of, you know, guys feeling pressure even as they publicly say oh it's fine to have pitched more than is comfortable like that stuff exists we need to properly identify when that's still happening mm-hmm. so that there can be some you know process of accountability for that and you know a, a rejiggering of priorities on certain teams if if that's necessary and it's tricky right because you know i saw someone point out like big league pitchers have never thrown fewer pitches than they do right now mm-hmm. and they still get hurt yep. so that doesn't mean that we should throw out pitch smart and say well it doesn't matter throw as many pitches as you want 200 whatever <laughs> like you know that's that's not the project but i do think we want to acknowledge that there is more to injury likelihood and injury occurrence than just the pitch count mm-hmm but also 156 pitches is so many. Yeah. And it was, and I think the other thing to to note here is that like in that game where he threw 156 pitches, which they ended up winning Stanford scored three runs in the top of the inning right. and we're up by like five. And then he went back out there again. And it's yeah. like, come on, man, like you're, you're up by five. Like, I know that a lot can happen in college ball. We just had the highest run scoring environment in college baseball ever, even though it's down a little bit in the, the regionals. I don't know what the super regional round has looked like in terms of its um, run scoring relative to the regular season environment. So that part, I don't know, but like, I get a lot can happen, but also come on, man, like, mm-hmm. you know, like at that point, I think the, the Stanford coach has to be like, look, I know you want a complete game, but like, we're up by five. You just, you know, it, it was funny. They interviewed Quinn Matthews in the dugout yesterday during the game that that Stanford ended up winning in such devastating fashion. I mean, not for Stanford, but again, for Texas. Oh my God. Oh no. Oh no. It's just, oh no. Um, and he was like, you know, it'll, it'll probably hit me more tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, well, your arm falls off, but like, that's overly simplistic. I think that it is important to note in these moments that like, even the, the stuff that it's coming from like a very scoldy perspective is, I think being done in service of concern for these young people. Yeah and an acknowledgement that the history around this stuff can be kind of gross. Yeah. And let's do the work to, like, analyze each of these individual circumstances so that we know, like, that one seems fine, actually. That Mm -hmm. one seems bad. That one's in the middle. Like, I think having an understanding of where that stuff is is really important so that we can differentiate and say, like, yes, it's better. No, it's not. Here's where there still needs, you know, where work needs to be done. Here are the kinds of programs that tend to, use their guys too heavily so we need to have you know more direct and and sort of harder hitting conversations with like these coaches at these mid major mm-hmm. programs or whatever it is you know like we yep. should like let's arm ourselves with real information here and then and then have the conversations that are necessary because some of them undoubtedly will undoubtedly <laughs> undoubtedly will be. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Cause uh, Matthews, uh, he's not young, young. He's 22 and uh, his eyes are open. I think uh, I read that he had recently done a paper, a presentation on Tommy John surgery. I think he's probably aware of the risks. And he said in a post game interview I knew I wanted the rock and I wanted to let our bullpen do the work tomorrow. Obviously, he was not reluctant to stay out there. He wanted to, but sometimes you have to rein that impulse in, right, when you're not the one on the mound and you're thinking, hopefully, about the player's long-term best interests and you're not the one with the adrenaline pumping and something at at stake and wanting to pitch a complete game. So sometimes it's your job as a coach to intervene and say, "Uh, nope, thanks, great work. Now I'm going to hand the rock off to someone else. But Yeah, I think on the whole, It does come from mostly a good place when people bring attention to this, and I think it probably does more good than bad, even if it's kind of over-applied, even if uh, people will sometimes train the spotlight on someone who doesn't really deserve it. I guess it does a disservice to the coach and the program in that instance if you're implying that they're doing something irresponsible and really, really they're not, but Probably on the whole, these things have gotten better and they've gotten better in part because of the attention that's been paid to them and, and people singling out coaches who really have not been careful with their pitchers and saying, hey, stop doing that. <laughs> and, and that leads to uh, people piling on, sometimes unfairly, but I think things are trending in the right direction direction and there're probably fewer of these instances to highlight than there used to be which maybe makes the ones that still happen seem even more egregious and and people are quicker to condemn that this is still happening and then you have to realize oh it's a fifth year grad student or something it's a little bit different but yeah i i think it's just always a a conversation that surfaces and sometimes it's just a little too simplistic and the actual situation is a little more nuanced. And again, I'm not going to be out there tweeting about this because I don't know the specifics of the programs and and the pitchers. But if you are and you have a big platform, then I I guess it is kind of incumbent on you to, to do that work, right? Just so that you make sure that you know situation fully before you you cause a whole lot of people to jump to conclusions about it. But teams, uh, major league organizations are definitely tracking the way that pitchers are used in amateur ball and it can affect your draft prospects even if you don't get hurt. Just the fact that you've been worked very heavily and maybe your injury risk is elevated, that could lead to you slipping a little bit, but then again, guys get drafted having just had Tommy John surgery or or teams knowing that they will have to have it, right? So it's almost it's expected at this point almost that you're gonna have to have it at some point. So the whole situation is sort of messy.
0: It's very messy and it I think is just made more complicated by the fact that it's it's really hard to know like who's gonna get hurt yep. you know and what's the tipping point for an individual guy like that is hard to know and i think a lot of work goes into developing those guidelines it's not like you know they're just like you know putting their finger in the air like yeah the ones are blowing mm-hmm. so there are some parameters that i think are useful guides for coaches and they should be cued too and i think that if you do that generally when you make decisions to diverge from them, I think you're you're doing so with a better understanding of the potential risks involved. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you have to weigh a guy's long-term future against his present enjoyment of advancing to the College World Series. And I think there is nuance that goes into those decisions. And we should allow for the possibility that for a guy who isn't a draft prospect, like, yeah, if he wants to go throw a, billion pitches because it's his final game like I think he gets to make that decision I think that coaches still have an obligation to those guys to kind of like help them understand the choice that they're making right Mm -hmm. because even if he never wants to throw a pitch an affiliated ball like it would still suck to have to get surgery (laughs) you know it's not as if that is a costless decision even for someone in that circumstance so I do think it's important for these guys to be really aware of what they're potentially risking. Mm-hmm. But I I suspect that they do a lot of the time, yep, you know.
1: Yep. So. Some good news, I guess, or an absence of bad news on the pitcher injury front. Dan Samborski just wrote for Fangrass about whether the pitch clock has impaired performance or caused injuries, and it's uh, too soon to say, but He at least did not find any obvious evidence that that's the case, that pitchers who have had to trim their times or have trimmed their times between pitches the most this season, and Shohei Otani is uh, one of them, who has uh, lopped off many seconds relative to his pace last year, which uh, you could say might have something to do with the fatigue that he's experienced in some starts this year. But on the whole, collectively, Dan did not find any strong evidence that pitchers uh, who have underperformed their projections tended to be the ones who have uh, sped up their pace more than others or that pitchers who have sped up their pace more than others have been more likely to get hurt and to be on the IL so far this season. So. He could not confirm the hypothesis that the pitch clock has exacerbated injury risk or hurt pitchers in terms of performance who have had to speed up the pace. So that's good, I guess, as just generally a a fan of the pitch clock. And I was thinking about that because I read – that in Japan and NPB they're talking about implementing the pitch clock perhaps as soon as next season they held off on implementing it this year. but having seen it largely seem to be a success in MLB this year, often NPB follows MLB's lead when it comes to rules changes, not always. For instance, I, I think the three batter minimum they decided eh, no, not for us, we don't need that one but but often major rules changes uh, they will follow suit. And so they're thinking about implementing the pitch clock soon. But one consideration in Japan, which is interesting, is that, you know, in MLB, we say, oh, we weren't really missing anything with all those seconds. It was just a dead air and nothing was really happening. But in Japan, they have... Coordinated cheers and chants and yeah. songs and yeah. and a lot of that would be curtailed by the pitch clock, which is uh, an interesting consideration. Like the games there are long. They, they've gotten long the way that MLB games have gotten long. I read that the average game time last year was three hours and nine minutes for nine inning games only, which was roughly where MLB games were, too. So so games there have gotten longer, and so they're similarly interested in shortening them. But there would be that. Cost because I have not had the pleasure of being at an NPB game, but just watching on TV, I mean, watching the World Baseball Classic, right? And, and one of the justifications that the Rules Committee is citing here for why NPB might need to do that is that, well, in 2026, when the WBC comes back, maybe then there will be a pitch clock in the WBC. And if Japanese players haven't become accustomed to that, then they might be at a disadvantage in that tournament, which might just be a reason to to justify this thing that they might want to do anyway but that would be an actual cost I guess in terms of the spectator experience that wasn't really incurred by implementing the pitch clock in the majors where sadly we don't have that same sort of atmosphere at games
0: yeah it's funny like we think of the implementation of the pitch clock as an aesthetic like net positive mm-hmm. and this is an instance where it might be a net negative you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: cuz we don't we're so Dull over
1: here. <laughs> yeah, dull. <laughs> it is dull, comparatively speaking. But dull. Yeah, I mean, I guess they could speed up some songs. Uh, they could find some other times to, you know, they could do it between innings or something instead. But, but there would be a little bit of a cost there that there really hasn't been over here. So, I don't know if that's a reason not to do it. But it's.
0: I mean, it is a reason. It is, I don't yeah. know if it's one that ends up ultimately being persuasive. Mm-hmm. But it's a reason. It's a reason.
1: Yeah, it's a consideration. <laughs> So you wanted to make a, a case for a vest before we ended here, right? We we talked about bad baseball teams. We mentioned that the Diamondbacks are not one, that they are, in fact, uh, one of the best baseball teams uh, by record. And they have a home run celebration or a, a celebration of of a sort. And you yes. want to make a case for it.
0: I do. And I want to, I want, before I lay out my case for the victory vest, Mm -hmm. victory vest vest. is going to be important. I have to acknowledge two things, you know, because we, you're more persuasive when you acknowledge the potential biases or flaws in your own argument, Mm -hmm. right? And the first of them is that, um... I like ugly stuff. <laughs> I tend to, you know, and the, the Diamondbacks have been a, a, sight of, of ugly stuff, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of the quality of the play on the field and some of the uniforms that they have, uh, flirted with, worn, you know, embraced and then rejected over the years. Yes. Their uniforms, mm-hmm. no longer the, the ugliest version, um, of themselves and the quality of the play on the field. Pristine, mm-hmm. excellent. You know, the bullpen could still use some help as we saw last night, but, <laughs> You know, it's not that Castro's bad. He's just not a ninth inning guy. You know, they need a like. I'm gonna come and get you,
1: mm-hmm. closer. They
0: don't. But they don't have that right now.
1: Yeah, but eh, they won. They beat. They, won. they beat the Braves despite a cycle by JT. They Rimbuto. beat the
0: Phillies. Bag. Oh yeah, yeah. Get Sorry,
1: yes. Sorry. With it, they beat the Phillies. That's the team that JT Realmuto is on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Catcher cycles never- are are pretty rare. Actually, they're
0: very rare. Yeah. they're quite rare. There've been and seventeen
1: I'm, of them, and uh, yes. that's that's fewer than the number of perfect games that are. But I guess it makes sense because catchers tend not to be great hitters, fast. <laughs> and they yeah, and they tend and not they tend to be fast. To, right, so triples uh, a little less likely, even harder yeah, for them. But, yeah, you know, fast by catcher standards. Yeah, so, pretty athletic. So, yeah, I saw yeah. what he did described as a cyclone. Because it it was like a cycle plus one plus one other thing because he also mm. walked in addition to the cycle mm. so so it's perhaps called in some circles a cyclone which I I kind of like anyway didn't mean to distract from the victory vest but they they overcame the Phillies and they got that victory and someone wore the victory vest I assume
0: yeah it was Corbin Carroll yeah. Corbin uh-huh. Carroll My you're guy. you know you a guy yeah. now <laughs> um uh he wore the victory vest and so yeah I I like. I tend to like ugly things, you know? I'm not here to say that all of the new era hats that are so weird are good. A lot of them still terrible, but I will say I have liked what I imagine are a, um, a greater percentage of them than the average mm-hmm. um, consumer of baseball things. Because yeah. I, I tend to be like, that's ugly, I would wear it. You know? <laughs> Does that reflect a flaw in my personality? I'll leave that to you to decide. But I tend to like ugly things. And as we've established, I like these D-backs, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they are now my local team. I obviously feel an excitement about watching a guy be not only, I think the NL rookie of the year, but like, Carmen Jerome is making, he's making an MVP case, Ben, you know, he's making a case. Is he the leader in the, uh, you know, clubhouse? I'm not here to say that, but I'm just saying that like, when we're talking about the guys, who are making? Who could you know? They might. They have. Mm-hmm. He's one of those guys, you know, with with a case because sure. he's quite good. Mm-hmm. So there's those two things that might bias me in favor of liking this because I like ugly things and I like it when the Diamondbacks win. Mm-hmm. We're here to make a case for the Victory Vest, which we will link to a picture of the Victory Vest. The Victory Vest, apparently there was some mystery around the origin of the Victory Vest. This is something that came to be because of Lourdes Gurriel Jr., mm-hmm. who is having a, a nice little season for, for the Diamondbacks, you know, came over in that Varsho trade uh, along with uh, Moreno. Mm-hmm. And... If one were to describe the the victory vest to a person who hasn't seen it, you might say, you know, think about what a, a pop star or a young movie star from the 80s might wear to look cool yeah. and then make it worse. Yeah. You know? And and that might be the way you'd describe it. It's red. Mm-hmm. It's I'm gonna assume it's leather. It might be pleather, but I'm gonna assume that it's leather. It's got a, a big A and a diamond back on one on one breast it's got uh y- you know a bunch of different little emblems on it it's got a big rattle on on the back with the diamond back and tridente it's like you know it's embracing all of their various bits and bobs mm-hmm. It's a lot. Yeah. There, there are definitely, like, rhinestones involved. There's <laughs> there's a lot happening with this vest, Ben. Mm-hmm. And I'm on record as being a little fatigued by home run celebrations. Because yeah. they feel, they sometimes feel, like, not authentic. They don't feel genuine. They feel like everyone, you know, we're succumbing to a collective peer pressure to have a weird thing that we do in the dugout. Does everyone like this? How has no one lost an eye to the Trident yet? <laughs> Someone's going to get hurt by that trident (laughs) it looks sharp like i i don't know man like we really want to mess with that we want to invite that energy into the mariners dugout there there yeah anyway
1: you want to be safe uh, use a a prop fake plastic trident or something it looks so
0: sharp (laughs) it looks remarkably sharp it looks like you know it is as sharp as like the steak knives that uh a guy selling steak knives door to door might try to sell you. You know, it looks like that kind of sharp. So this does not have any of that concern, right? The the victory vest. One doesn't need to worry about that with a victory vest in part because it's soft. Might it be flammable? If it's if it's plether, it might be flammable, right? But it's also a thing that you don't see every day. Yeah. You know? Right. Because even in games that the Diamondbacks lose, they might hit a home run you know and then if they had a home run thing, they did it they'd, they'd mm-hmm. see this it, it's over this like is the right amount of a victor of a of a k- kooky thing yeah. you know mm-hmm. it is hilariously oversized even <laughs> even for baseball players who are often quite big, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it says, for the people of the neighborhood in Spanish on the other mm-hmm. breast pocket. Like, it's just, it's a, a weird object that has obviously been constructed with a great deal of intentionality on the part of, of of Gurriel. Like, he really, he thought about all the things he wanted to go into this. And now, when the Diamondbacks win, which as we've established we're doing a lot of lately, the, the kind of player of the game will wear the victory vest yep. when he's doing his post-game like, I ah, it was so great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, ah, they don't sound like that. But, you know, if one did, they'd go, ah. Yeah. And they'd be wearing the vest while they say it. Mm-hmm. So I think that we should embrace the victory vest and we should embrace the Arizona Diamondbacks and be very excited. And maybe if I keep um, talking up kind of ugly things related to them they will finally give me a snake
1: <laughs> mascot yes
0: don't be cowards you got the little rattlers it's not enough Mm-mm. go go big nope. you know You're only part embrace of the, way the there. energy of the victory vest mm-hmm. give me a, an actual snake mascot yeah it's time
1: i i'm with you on that and also yeah i like this i endorse this and it- <laughs> Feels very qualified.
0: but I'm not going to lie. I feel like you're not doing it enthusiastically.
1: (laughs) I I don't know if it's unique. I feel like there have been other things in baseball or in sports that are sort of similar in that, uh, like the player of the game gets uh, some object is bestowed upon that player. Oh, sure, right. So, so it's not uh, unique to the Diamondbacks, but this specific, right? Yeah, this specific version of it is distinctive, and and I. I like having sort of a stars of the game system. I, I've praised the three stars system in hockey and uh, fan has had sort of a similar thing that uh, readers can vote on stars of a game at the FanGraphs website. And so I like recognizing that uh, with something more material than just a high win probability <laughs> added, right? Just a physical keepsake, but not one that you keep beyond that. You pass it around. And there's like a sisterhood of a traveling pants sort of system set up where where everyone gets to wear this thing, which is nice. And I think also, yeah, you, you never bestow the vest Unless it's a happy occasion, which is the right. thing w- with the home run celebrations. In addition to them just quickly becoming de rigueur, and you almost have to have them, and and they become just uh, sort of sanitized and and just obligatory, and you know they're like workshopped, and and you just sit down and say, well, we need a celebration because everyone else has a celebration. It's kind of conformist, which is not to suggest that there's not some joy involved, but. There are cases where, you know, you're being blown out and it's like the eighth inning and one of your guys hits a home run. And because you have the home run celebration, you've got to go through the motions. You know, you have to right. put on the helmet or or get whatever yeah. prop it is, right? But uh, no one's really happy. The person right. who just hit the home run is probably pleased about that, but – isn't really in a position where they can fully celebrate because the team is is not doing well. And so they don't want to feel like they're totally joyous when the team as a whole has suffered some misfortune. I mean, I don't want to police how happy you can be when your team is losing. I'm not someone who's oh, like, yeah. you can't have the stereo on in the clubhouse when the team lost or something like, you know, stay loose, uh, take your moments of happiness where you can find them. But there are times where, like, the team's dragon and you've lost a bunch of games and you're losing this game and you get what is, to the team at least, a meaningless run at the end and you still have to go through your, your home yeah. run celebration without the usual enthusiasm. That's not going to happen with the victory vest. Now, I guess you could lose a bunch of games in a row, but even if you lost a bunch of games in a row, when you finally won one, you'd probably be pretty pleased about that. So so I like the idea of the victory vest like it it would never feel like you're just kind of going through the motions cuz you're always happy to win and that always deserves to be celebrated.
0: Yeah, I think um you really don't want to poke someone's eye out with the trident no. when you're losing. <laughs> that would be Yeah. Even that would be even worse. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think that it you know, it naturally limits the usage so that you don't tire of it. You are going to just enthusiastically be pleased that you won a game. And, uh, yeah, I think it's um, it's not perfect, but it's close. Mm-hmm. It's in the realm of perfect. And it's so, it's like, it fits all of them. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. It's such a funny, and like, you know, you put it on Corbin Carroll, and it's like, oh, you're just, you know, you're a little <laughs> wee guy. Yes,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: you're a little wee, wee guy. He got hit twice, you know, and it got very it got contentious the the bench is cleared Troy Lavello yelled at uh JT Realmotu who famously does play for the Phillies mm, yes. and mm-hmm. never has never played for the Braves. No. like not even yeah. one time Don't know why I, said I thought that. of you. Yeah. I thought of you when he hit the catcher cycle and I was like, I think Ben will think this is an actual fun fact, but I assumed that
1: you knew what to do. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm just Joshing. In. I assure I'm you, I, I knew you. on most levels of my mind, just not yeah. the one that was speaking on a podcast. Sometimes that's okay. Things, that level uh, doesn't out. always work yeah. for me either, <laughs> no. you know. So lastly, Do you want to, for a few minutes, uh, bemoan the state of sports media? I I saw you send some tweets out about (sighs) this uh, conversation about sports media. It it can always be a bit navel-gazy, as we are members of the media and sports media specifically. But I think it's uh, relevant to our listeners, who are also readers and consumers of other sites and and writers and media members. And uh, there was uh, quite some consternation caused on Monday by the news that The athletic would be laying off some folks. It was not a massive scale layoff, but it you know, any layoff is is a bad <laughs> layoff from the yeah. perspective of the people being laid off and uh, people who enjoy their work. So this was 4% of its journalistic staff, uh, 20 reporters, and then 20, I think, also being reassigned to other beats. The five full-time baseball writers who were laid off are all former Effectively Wild guests In some cases, multi-time guests, uh, people we have quite enjoyed reading and and talking to and podcasting with. And I think one of the things that uh, people were dismayed to see... In the Washington Post report about this was maybe what it reflected about the athletics larger strategy, right? Because uh, the athletic, of course, began with the ambition and and for a while, largely the reality of covering every team in every major sport and every team was going to have a beat writer and they were going to have quality coverage and even if you were a fan of one of the smaller teams, you could count on getting good coverage of that team at The Athletic. And now, this is some years down the road, a lot has changed. Obviously, The Athletic was acquired by The New York Times, right? And uh, it initially started with the promise of this is going to be entirely subscription-based and we're not going to have any ads. Uh, no, there are ads uh, on the podcast and in the articles and everything. And also, they have been and maybe now are in an accelerated way shifting away, it sounds like, from that original model of covering everyone everywhere to, I guess you could say, going where the readers are or where they have judged that most of their readers are, but basically – They have decided that they are going to be shifting away from some local beats in some sports that have more regional audiences like MLB, like the NHL, and going more toward NFL and Premier League coverage and more national level coverage of other sports. And, of course, uh, the athletic still employs uh, many national level baseball writers and, and many good ones. But. This is a a change in philosophy and direction, right? So I'll just quote from the statement here. The Athletic has generally viewed every league in a similar manner with similar beats and offerings, but our growing body of research and our own understanding of the sports we cover compel a more nuanced approach. There is no perfect formula for determining which teams to cover, but we are committing dedicated beat reporters to the ones that most consistently produce stories that appeal to both large and news-hungry fan bases as well as league-wide audiences. One more note, our data shows – that the stories that are of greatest interest to our subscribers and draw in the most new readers and subscribers are often the ones that provide revel- revelatory, revelatory, I forget which one we're doing on this podcast, <laughs> both information about players and teams that resonate with fans across an entire league.
0: Right. So, I mean, there's the part of this that is just the human, like, I have friends who lost their jobs yeah. yesterday, mm-hmm. as do you, who do really, really good work. Um and you know the the layoffs were certainly not limited to the the MLB side of things no. but to your point like we to the point of it being a cliche talk about baseball as a local endeavor a lot of the time and so to shift away from that kind of dedicated beat coverage feels like it demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of the sport. And even if you want to say, you know, I understand budgets aren't limitless, but even if you want to say, okay, there are going to be a couple of beats where it's just like the fan base is really small. People don't read this stuff, whatever. At this point, the athletic has an absence, lacks beat writers for almost half of major league baseball on a team by team basis including four of the six current division leaders, Mm -hmm. right? They don't have a dedicated Rangers beat. They don't have a dedicated Diamondbacks beat. They don't have a dedicated Rays beat. They don't have a dedicated Pirates beat. They just don't. Mm -hmm. And they, in fact, don't have dedicated beats for any of the teams in the state of Arizona. It's like the Suns have Kevin Durant and the Athletic does not have a beat writer on it. Mm. I just fundamentally don't know how you write those deep revelatory stories when your coverage is that scattered. And as you said, like they have national writers, you know, we have national writers. It's not as if you can't do really good reported work when you're parachuting in. You can, people do. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, I think about the, you know, the writing that say Corey Brock did on the Mariners last year as they were going through their postseason run. And, you could tell that this was a person who was around and knew those players and interacted with them regularly and interacted with the team regularly. What if the Mariners hadn't made it to the postseason last year and the years were just flipped. It was happening this year. And now the athletics doesn't have a beat, you know, like mm-hmm. I think that it also suggests to me a belief of sports operating in stasis in a way that we know they don't, right? If your project and your coverage plan is, we're going to commit resources to the teams that make news, well, that changes, you know? And I think that when you look at someone like James Feigen, who lost his job, you know, I cared about what is arguably a bad and at times quite boring White Sox team (laughs) because of the work that James did. And there are stories to be written and told about teams in the up and the down, and in their movement but around the competitive cycle, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, I don't think that it's particularly surprising we've seen this playbook in sports media before. I unfortunately think that we will see it again. Mm -hmm. But it is very discouraging that people who tell really good stories, do good reported work are committed to, you know, rigor and are curious and ask interesting questions and then really find cool and creative ways to answer those questions. You know, Zach Buchanan gets taken off of the Diamondbacks beat and sort of put to work doing minor league coverage and I think back on the baseball stories I've read in the last year, and he penned a lot of them, mm-hmm. like the best ones I read about prospects who were suddenly breaking through prospects who had had challenging life circumstances, you know, how the league was going to contend with the environmental impact of wildfires in the West. Like he told those stories. And so, and you know, Robin Nick, Told great stories too. Like I don't mean to say that like, it was limited to to those three guys. Like everyone who got laid off yesterday did good work. Mm-hmm. So I just feel it's it feels very discouraging. And when you think about the kinds of stories that it sets the rest of the industry up to tell, you know, when there's this much precarity for sports media when jobs are that we have to hold on to them so tightly. Mm-hmm. It sets everyone else to, up to be taken advantage of because it's like, what are you going to do? You want to raise? Well, yeah. there are ten, you know, ten people who are going to take your spot. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you want better working conditions? You want management to listen to you? It just sets everybody up to have their circumstances be made worse. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, and today at the athletic, that's what happened. But it it provides an environment for that stuff to flourish if it wants to. And as we've seen. In the last couple of years, like that is generally the environment that the capital behind media wants to flourish. So I just feel discouraged. I feel bummed out and worried for my friends. And I feel sad for readers because I don't think that this is the path to better coverage than we have now. It might be the path to worse coverage. That won't be the fault of any of the people who remain at that publication. And I think that there are going to be important stories that help us advance our understanding of baseball as a sport and a social endeavor that aren't going to be told now. Mm -hmm. And that sucks for everyone involved.
1: Yeah. So There was already that uh, bit about the memo that they were given when they joined the Times about steering away from certain types of stories, right? Social interests, social justice sort of stories. But I think – A few things, I guess. One, I'm sure they have data that shows that uh, certain teams don't drive subscriptions or revenue as much as others and that they make some economic calculation that probably makes some sort of sense. But the... Identity of the athletic was really about providing coverage everywhere. That was sort of the thing that set it apart, that that was its mission. So you do lose, I I think, some essence of the athletic when it's just like, well, if we cover big teams and we have national writers, well, other places do that too. So it was the fact that they had beats for every team, that was the athletic signature. And it was really nice as a reader to know that I could get quality coverage of every team, even if it wasn't a a team that has a huge national media profile. And you're losing that, right? And I, I think Also, you know, a lot of people have brought up that quote from several years ago from one of the athletics co-founders about how they were just going to pillage newspapers and they were going to bleed them dry and put them out of business and everything. And uh, now here they are laying people off after they kind of cashed in by getting the times to buy them, right? It was, you know – lots of venture capital funding, try to inflate the valuation and then sell to the times and, you know, founders get millions and millions. And then once that's done, you figured there were probably going to be some cuts at some point. And I think, yeah, I mean, that quote was regrettable at the time and regretted. I think a lot of those Local newspapers obviously were struggling and and have struggled even more since then. And a lot of people at those newspapers had lost their jobs and would have lost their jobs in the interim anyway. And were all too happy to jump to the athletic, which seemed to promise a, a better experience in any number of ways. So that was you know taking advantage of exploiting a, a trend that was already ongoing, I think, and and has only accelerated since then. And. It is sort of just, I mean, it's a media wide problem, right? It, it, this is something that's happening across media, across sports media. I subscribed to this Axios newsletter called Axios Media Trends, and I just got a new edition of it today, shortly before we recorded. And the number one item is record cuts. And it's uh, not just about the athletic. The media industry has announced at least 17,436 job cuts so far this year, marking the highest year-to-date level of cuts on record. According to a new report, the level of cuts is worse than at the outset of the pandemic in 2020. The news industry is facing huge constraints due to a slowdown in the ad market, debt from consolidation, and subscription fatigue. Broadcast digital and print news outlets have collectively announced 1,972 cuts so far this year, surpassing all of the cuts announced. In all of 2022. So, I mean, the athletic cuts here, it's a drop in the bucket there. I mean, the, the Washington Post, which reported this news, they had their own layoffs recently. So that's, I think, part of why this causes so much uproar and and so much fear about the future of the industry and everything, because things aren't going great anywhere, really. And so this is just yet another sign of the apocalypse, basically. And and obviously, there are all kinds of costs when it comes to sacrificing local news that might not just be that you're not getting great coverage on your baseball team, but yeah. you know, there might be even more serious <laughs> totally, consequences yes. to that. Yes. So, you know, I don't know that it's been like a great time for media for most of the time that I've been in media. And it, it seems like uh, people are always wringing their hands over layoffs and they're always going to be some number of layoffs and then there's some number of hires but obviously it's it's not uh, equaling out these days for all sorts of trends and and larger reasons and the athletic uh, from all the reporting has never been profitable. Like it's been losing millions and millions of dollars a year despite having millions of subscribers now, which is sort of sad. I mean, obviously people who made the athletic came away from that with millions and millions and millions of dollars. So it's not as if there, there wasn't money created here, but uh but that core business model, you know, I, I mean, it's uh, the same old story about this thing is never profitable and yet it is worth a fortune. How is that possible? <laughs> How does that math work exactly? But, you know, we see that repeated and and in sports media specifically or media in general, like it, it always seems like whenever something is, is good and promising and hey, people are being paid fairly and and there are no ads and there's good coverage, like those things never seem to last very long, which is is sad. I mean, you know, I was a part of Grantland. It didn't last all that long. There were many predecessors, Grantland style outlets that were celebrated in their day and just didn't last that long because uh, they weren't profitable or they weren't profitable enough. Like, that's always the distinction, right? like when when a VC person expects something to grow forever, infinitely, exponentially, then uh, you know, they might not be satisfied with just sort of steady earning. and and uh, bit by bit growth, like you know, people have expected media companies to be like these uh, unicorns that are going to be worth the trillion dollars, and and that just may not be the case. Like that may ne- never have been realistic. Which is not to say that there's not merit in just operating something that uh, provides quality coverage and gives a bunch of people employment. So it's uh, just not a, a great time. You know, I saw tons of Twitter threads from other writers just being like, what do I tell aspiring writers? You know, like, should I even tell them to get into this industry? I mean, there have been places like Fangrass, places like Baseball Prospectus, which has certainly had its struggles over the years. But, you so know, way, right? yeah, sure. Right. I mean, it's it's never, you know, like you can be totally secure. And and these are smaller sites that, that maybe makes it more viable for them to to operate without, like, massive overhead and, and huge budgets and everything. But it's still a struggle year after year.
0: I don't know what to tell people about the the question of, like, should I get into it? I mean, I think that... <laughs> I, I guess the, the depressing undercurrent to my answer of yes, if you want to, is, like, what industries are you looking around at and feeling like they are secure for average workers, right? Like, there is a sense of heightened precarity in the in the media space and I think that that's true to a certain extent but like things aren't great anywhere. Mm-hmm. So oh, go for it, kid. <laughs> um but I think that yeah, it just it feels it feels very precarious. I'll just use that word again and you know even places that really want to try to do the right thing You know, the instances of that sort of working in the long term are limited. You're right that the athletic didn't make money, but it is discouraging that it's like, can't we just be satisfied with, like, some profit? Mm -hmm. You know, you see these VCs come in, and it's like, you know, why would this behave the way that, like, you know, Target stock does? That might be a bad example, but, like, it's media. It's about stories. It's a Mm -hmm. different—it's just a fundamentally different thing that you're— offering as a value proposition to the consumer than you know widgets. Mm-hmm. So I just I I think that this might ultimately not be enough of a solution. But I do think that when when you as a listener, as a reader, you know, encounter work that you find valuable, if you're in a position to do it, you should try to support that work as directly as you can because you know ad rates are bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And even when they're not bad, like they fluctuate a lot and it can really turn quite quickly. The margins are small. And so, if you're in a position to support media that matters to you, you should do that. If you're a subscriber to these places, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic and it bothers you that these folks were let go, and I think it should, like, you should. Tell them that Mm -hmm. you should let the athletic know that, which I don't say like go scream at whatever poor soul has to manage their Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like your subscriber, you give them money. You should write them a note about that. Like tell them. And, you know, I don't want to overstate like the, the power in that, but there is some. And if part of what is driving the decision making around where you dedicate coverage and by extension, where you dedicate financial resources, having data points that say, no, like, this kind of coverage mattered. This kind of coverage inspires me to keep my subscription or not. Like, it's something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's just sex. It's like, I sit here and I'm like, I wish that we had a limitless budget because then everyone
1: would <laughs> <laughs> sure, that'd be nice. Yeah. yeah like, uh, I saw some people saying, you know, I'm going to cancel my subscription over this, which like that sends a message, but then it also it might right. make this more likely to happen again. I mean, uh, obviously, if, if you're not getting your money's worth, uh, then do whatever you want. But if it's like I'm canceling to send the message that this is not what I want the athletic to be. It might send that message, it might cause a course correction, or it might cause them to double down and be like, well, now we've got to cut even more people because our revenue declined. And I still, I read something at The Athletic, I think probably every single day, and there are a ton of great writers I respect and admire. They're doing really good work. So you want to send a message while also still supporting the people who were there who, you know, weren't responsible for this decision. So Thank you to our Patreon supporters, I guess, yeah. is the message, but and FanCraft yeah. subscribers in general. But, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, we like, you know, the interests of good storytellers and the interests of curious readers are aligned, mm-hmm. you know? We want to tell stories, and we want to, you know, do analysis, and we want to better understand the sport. And curious readers and listeners, they want that too. Mm-hmm. You know, the the misalignment isn't between the people doing the work and the people reading and listening to the work. It's between all of us and the people who make decisions about who gets to keep their job and not, mm-hmm. and how much profit is enough profit. That's where the misalignment is. Mm-hmm. So, I think that there is a lot of, and this might sound Pollyanna-ish, but, like, there is power to be had in that, like, fundamental storyteller, writer, podcaster to reader and listener relationship because we want the same things, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more satisfying to discover something cool about baseball when you can go tell someone about Mm -hmm. it. Like that helps to really make it sing and feel worthwhile. And, you know, if you're hanging out with any of the folks who lost their jobs yesterday, you know, buy them a beer Mm -hmm. or whatever they want to drink. And like, I think we, uh, like- When folks decide to discontinue their Patreon support, like, they can do an exit survey, and a lot of Mm -hmm. people do. And a lot of our Patreon supporters who have had to move on from the Patreon, but we hope still listen to the show lately, have, like, expressed that they're getting laid off. Mm -hmm. And their budgets are tight, and they're experiencing financial hardship, and their circumstances have changed. And so, like... I have wanted to say for a minute, and maybe this is a good opportunity to do it, like if you're one of those folks, I'm really sorry that that's what's going on and we appreciate you listening and mm-hmm. hope you feel like you're still part of this uh, project because, yeah. you know, we know that stuff's getting getting real and has been real for a lot of people for a long time.
1: So, yeah. you know,
0: I hope we think of it as all being in it together in, in some way. Yeah, so.
1: the last thing I was going to say about the media aspect of this is that when the result is that Everything splinters into a zillion different paywalled outlets, so right. Substacks, whatever it is. Uh, like uh, people should be paid for their work. So uh, you know, there's kind of a, an internet tradition of expecting things to be free, and so people sometimes balk at what I have to pay to read something. Well, yeah, you got to fund uh, people's time and effort, but beyond that, I mean, it's just it's tough as a reader and consumer yeah. to follow a zillion different places that you have to pay for. You can't pay for all of them. And if they're not all in one place, you know, you pay for the athletic and you get access to all the athletic writers or baseball Prospectus or whatever it is that it's it's tough. You know, suddenly you have yeah. like a zillion different sub stacks and can you afford to do that? And can you keep track of them all? And also, if you didn't already have a big public platform somewhere, it's it's very hard to build a following from scratch on a Substack in a newsletter, right, often.
0: Especially with Twitter falling apart before our very (laughs) eyes. Yeah,
1: right. People have to have some sort of following built up before they go private, basically. And then when all that stuff is behind the paywall, it works out very well for some people, not everyone, and... Then, you know, people don't get as many eyeballs on that work, which is unfortunate if it's really good work. So, so it's, uh, yeah, it's not great in any number of ways.
0: And it, it curtails like the kinds of people who can pursue this work right. as real work. Yeah. You know, if, if you have to be able to float yourself or cobble together freelance income, you know, we've talked about this before. So we don't have to like, you know, do the whole conversation again, but like, it limits the kinds of stories that get told because it limits the kind of people who can afford to tell them. Mm-hmm. And that's not good either. So, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. One of the things that was really great about The Athletic is that it was kind of like cable. It's right. like everything <laughs> was just in one place. Yes,
1: yeah, And, and no, I didn't
0: read all of it in much the same way that when I had cable, I didn't watch every channel, but it was nice
1: Right, but now every writer is a separate streaming service, <laughs> so with yeah, a monthly fee, yeah. it's it's tough. Uh, all right. On that note, we yeah. will wrap up with the past blast, which comes to us from the distant year of 2019. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and also from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston who writes, League Experiments with Robo-UMPs. In 2019, the Independent Atlantic League became the first professional baseball league in America to use a robotic umpiring system. I guess it had been tested here and there. I I know the Pacific Association tried it out. We tried it out with the Stompers one time. The Pacifics did it. But to actually be implemented on a league-wide level all season, this was uh, new and novel. So David writes, beginning with the league's all-star game in July, balls and strikes were called by a computer. A human umpire wearing an earpiece would remain at home plate and relay the correct call made using TrackMan technology. Brian Debrower, who was behind the plate for the All-Star game, explained that his role was in part to serve as a safety net in case the system failed. He explained, until we can trust the system 100%, I still have to go back there with the intention of getting a pitch correct, because if the system fails, it doesn't pick a pitch up, or if it registers a pitch that's a foot and a half off the plate as a strike, I have to be prepared to correct that. The human ump's had the authority to override the system if they saw fit and also gave judgment on check swing calls, which the system was not set up to register. Players disagreed with the umpire's ability to veto a call. Former major leaguer Kirk Neuenheis said, if the umpire still has discretion, it defeats the purpose. Other than that, however, players and umpires alike reportedly had generally positive reactions to the new technology. The future is crazy, but it's cool to see the direction of baseball, said Atlantic League infielder L.J. Mazzilli. After the All Star game, the Atlantic League planned to roll the system out across the league in forthcoming weeks. After that, we're relatively confident that it's going to spread through organized baseball, said League President Rick White. Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred tempered expectations, however, suggesting that there was no timeline for when the technology would advance to the majors and that league officials would need to see how it works before making any decisions. In the meantime, however, the Atlantic League made sure fans could still voice their displeasure about calls they took issue with. During the All Star game, the stadium's PA announcer directed fans to look up at the black screen hanging off the face of the upper level behind the plate and joked that they could blame the computer for any disagreements over calls. And here we are a few years later, still trying to see how it works, uh, still spreading through organized baseball. And of course, we have the wrinkle of the challenge system, which uh, now seems to have become the preferred option and maybe the more likely to be implemented when this does come to the majors.
0: That's right.
1: Well, after we finished recording, the Nevada State Senate voted 13 to 8 in favor of the A's proposal for about $380 million in public funding to build a stadium in Las Vegas. Now, it's the State Assembly's turn to vote on that proposal on Wednesday. If it gets past that hurdle, then it would go to the governor for ratification. Also, if you're keeping track of Albert Pujols' employment, after his retirement as a player, he has added yet another new job to his collection. He's been hired as a global ambassador and executive advisor to the CEO of Baseball United, which is a professional baseball league that's supposed to start playing in Dubai later this year. So Albert Pujols is now employed by the Angels, MLB, and MLB Network, and Baseball United, just that we know of. He's not taking it easy in his retirement. I know that despite our doom and gloom about the media and sports writing, unemployment in general in the U.S. is quite low. Could it be because Albert Pujols is employed three times over? Is that skewing the stats? no, I know that's not how it works. You can, and we hope you will support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help us keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Matthias Mando, Craig Clemens, Andrew Johnston, Michael Hoffman, and Chewbacca. Thanks, Chewy. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. Reddit has gone dark, Twitter is imploding, but the Effectively Wild Discord group seems to be a great place to be. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams and discounts on ad-free Fangraphs memberships and merch and expedited email answers and so much more, patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, but anyone and everyone can email us at podcasts at send us your questions and comments. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. The subreddit is r slash Effectively Wild. The Twitter handle is at EWPod. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another show a little later this week. Talk to you then. Effectively Wild. It's the zombie runner. Bobby Shane's Bobby zombie runner Bobby Shands Bobby Shands, Bobby Shands I'm actively wild Joey Manessis no. walk off three run digger stop it <laughs> walk off three run shot oh my god Meg, he's the best player in baseball I'm